Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, a check-in with both of Connecticut's U.S. Senators. Chris Murphy is pushing new mental health reform legislation in Congress. It's not enough just to say that you cover mental health the same that you cover physical health. You also can't put these bureaucratic uh, and red tape barriers in front of families who are trying to access their mental health benefit. Also, Senator Richard Blumenthal is backing federal action to help bring Puerto Rico back from the financial brink. It is a key step toward avoiding the catastrophe and humanitarian crisis that will result if these Puerto Rican municipalities and public utilities are unable to pay their debts. Those conversations coming up. But first, Hartford City Treasurer Adam Cloud is up for re-election next Tuesday. But new information reported on by WNPR's Jeff Cohen shows that Cloud has been mixing up his work in public office with personal work for the flailing golf lifestyle television station, The Back Nine Network. Joining us to talk more about this is Jeff Cohen, who covers the Capital Region and also Hartford and Hartford politics for WNPR. Welcome back to the show, Jeff. Thanks, John. So before we get to the news in your latest story, let's back up and remind people who and what we're talking about here. Sure. So the Back Nine Network is a now off the air, I think they called it a golf and entertainment lifestyle company, which means that they had programming that they were going to put both on the internet and on television as an alternative, say, to the golf network, if you're a golf watcher. So uh, they got about $5 million in funding from the state. They got about $40 million, I think, or or so around that number from investors. Uh, And then they famously burned through it and ran out of money earlier this year, fired all all but their executive staff, and now are in the process of raising more money. So that's the Back Nine Network. On the other side of the equation is city treasurer Adam Cloud. So we've been doing some stories about the treasurer and his interest in the company. Uh, His family has done business with Back Nine. His brother was its lobbyist. His father was its landlord. Those both began in 2011. So those are the people and the groups we're talking about. Okay, so what, what are we talking about? Those are the people. What are we talking about? So the biggest question we've been looking at is the relationship between the city treasurer, Adam Cloud, and Back Nine. And a few months ago, the city treasurer had his records subpoenaed by agents of the Federal Securities and Exchange Commission. I looked at some of those records that were turned over, and in his email collection was an email to a private investor from city treasurer Adam Cloud. And and in it, Cloud tries to steer that investor, a man by the name of Robert Smith, to invest in the Back Nine Network. And did this work? Did he invest in Back Nine? It didn't. And in fact, none of the outreach that Cloud did on behalf of Back Nine appears to have paid off for the company. That said... The city did invest some of its pension funds with that same investor. So in, in in the course of one email, the city treasurer is doing both city business and he's advocating for, on behalf of this private company with which his family did business. So this is what you reported in your story. And coming out of that story, we heard an apology from Adam Cloud. That's right. The city treasurer apologized. It was a very specific apology. It was, I apologize for the manner in which he said he used poor judgment for the manner in which he reached out to this private equity investor. But he didn't apologize for the fact that he reached out on behalf of a company that did business with his family. 
In fact, he proudly boasts his advocacy on behalf of businesses that do business in the city, uh, and that's something that he's proud to do. He also said uh, in the course of those back and forth with his attorney that he couldn't recall ever having done any sort of something similar, you know, reaching out to an investor on Back Nine's behalf other than in, in this instance. Okay, so part of the apology was, I'm sorry for the manner in which I did this essentially using the city email account, not really apologizing for doing any sort of work on behalf of a Hartford-based company that he wants to get investors for. That's right. But he said he can't recall doing anything else like this from a city email account, so you went and looked at the rest of his emails. Right. That's sort of a dare to a reporter, kind of. I mean, right? So if, if you say you can't ever having, you never did it again, then our next move is to then send an FOI request, a Freedom of Information request, for all of uh, the treasurer's emails that involve back nine. And sure enough, there were a series of correspondences where he reached out to investors. Uh, he reached out, he went to some parties and, and we can w- walk them through. But what they reveal is a guy who is actively over the course of three years trying to boost and bolster this new company in the city of Hartford. I should back up, John, and say that uh, the initial story that we wrote has prompted the city's ethics commission to take a look into this. So they're not necessarily, or we don't know if they're necessarily investigating Adam Cloud, but they are looking at the differences between the city and the state ethics codes. And even that has gotten his attorney, John Droney, sort of rankled. I think this is a witch hunt. I think it's unfair. And I don't believe that the Ethics Commission has any jurisdiction to investigate Adam Cloud for what has happened here. Leave Adam Cloud out of this. How many times does he have to apologize and ask to move on? Okay, so so that's part of what uh, his attorney, John Droney, has, has said. The Ethics Commission in the city is looking at whether or not the state ethics code and the city ethics code should should line up. Essentially, what, what Droney and Cloud are saying is, look, According to the city of Hartford ethics rules, we didn't do anything wrong. I mean, the fact that my family may be involved with this company is not anywhere spelled out that I can't advocate on behalf of this company while in office. That's exactly right. In fact, what the state code said, the state code code rather is would encompass this kind of activity and prohibit this kind of activity. The city code does not. It says that you can't work on behalf of things that would benefit your family if those things are in front of you. And this was technically not in front of the city treasurer. So that's the technicality. The City Ethics Commission is looking into it. Meanwhile, in the emails that we found, you know, he's reaching out to investors. He's uh, sending an investor back nine prospective investor information. He's going to a party, uh, one with – and he says he's going to bring – it's a back nine party it's in, uh, after the U.S. Open. He's going to bring a couple prospects with him. One of the prospects is ESPN's Trey Wingo, who's a – celebrity NFL guy, I think, mostly. Uh, and another is a guy net by the, a lawyer by the name of David Panico, whose firm, Robinson & Cole, is the city's paid bond counsel. And then there's sort of other b- back and forths uh, where he's trying to encourage people to take a look at Back Nine. All of these things sort of raise the question of why is he doing it in this case with this company? Okay, so we've established that his family has ties to this company, Back Nine. A couple quick questions for you about Back Nine, Jeff. Is Back Nine still exist? You say it's off the air. It burned through all this money. It had certainly state money, five million dollars that was invested in it. Is Back Nine still around? Back Nine had back in February fired all but its executive team, and now that team is down to two, as far as I can tell. 
and they are actively trying to find money to uh, get this thing back off the ground, in part because they have a lot of investors who would like to see some sort of return on the investment that they made. Including something you've reported on, lawsuits by some investors who've actually said that the company duped them. Essentially, they were taking money that they shouldn't have taken from investors. That's right. Uh, the Gio family, uh, of, I believe, of Bristol has said that, that, that they weren't essentially given the full story. In fact, in court within the past uh, couple weeks, they even said that one of their signatures on an important document in this whole thing had been forged. It's a nasty tangle. There are former employees who are suing. The, the company is trying its best to get back on the air, as far as I can tell, and you know, produce new content. One more question just to back up to the beginning of the story that we started talking about, the beginning of your reporting, really. You said it started because you got a chance to see emails that were subpoenaed by the Securities and Exchange Commission, emails from Adam Cloud's office. Do we know why the SEC is looking into the city treasurer in Hartford? We don't. Well, that's one of the handicaps when you're in this sort of situations. You know what an agency might be looking for, but you don't know why they're looking. The SEC doesn't say, here's what we're investigating, but rather you have to sort of piece it together from what they're looking through. They've looked through his camp- Adam Cloud's campaign finance filings since 2011, when he was first formally elected. Uh, they've looked through a lot of correspondence and emails, but they don't tell you what they're looking for. And keep in mind, this is the SEC. This is not the FBI. This is these are not necessarily criminal investigators. Uh, and there's no there's no allegation that he's done anything wrong in that in that regard. They're just simply looking um, because they govern what he does. They the SEC governs uh, investments and securities and exchanges, and that's the business of the city treasurer. Jeff Cohen covers Hartford for WNPR. You can read this story and more of his coverage on this issue at WNPR.org. Jeff, thanks very much. You're welcome. When we come back, we'll be talking to Senator Christopher Murphy about some of what he's working on in Congress and also his reaction to a new report about drone strikes by the U.S. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, we'll check in with U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal about Puerto Rico's financial crisis and what our federal government can do to help. But first, his colleague in Connecticut's other Senator Chris Murphy is scheduled to take part in a hearing today with the Senate HELP Committee. That's Health, Education, Labor and Pensions. The hearing will focus on mental health, and it's the committee's first hearing on the subject in more than two and a half years. Murphy has announced mental health reform legislation earlier this year. Senator Chris Murphy joined us earlier in the week. Welcome back to Where We Live. Yeah, thanks for having me back. First of all, let's talk about some legislation that you've been working on around mental health. And I know that this is something that you've been uh, very passionate about and concerned about. An awful lot of the conversation that we have in America around mental health today, unfortunately, has to do with this rash of mass shootings that we've found entirely too common. I guess I'm wondering if you can talk about the Mental Health Reform Act and some of what you and your colleagues are working on right now. I think at the outset, it's important to talk about the problem that we're trying to solve for. So we have a broken mental health system because in the 1960s, we made a commitment to deinstitutionalize the mentally ill, to bring them out of institutionalized settings like sane asylums, as we called them those days, and put them in the community. But two things happened. One, we never fully funded that community-based system. So people came out of the institutions, but then ended up on the streets, ended up warehoused once again in prisons or emergency rooms. 
But then we also made the mistake of setting up a mental health delivery system that was totally different than the rest of our healthcare system. So you'd go into an emergency room, and if you had a broken leg, you could go right upstairs to get it fixed at an orthopedic suite. But if you had a broken brain, then you had to wait a couple weeks and go to the other side of town to see someone at the local community mental health care clinic. So you have this dual problem of the system for people with mental illness being under-resourced and compartmentalized uh, away from the rest of the health care system. Um, and it's broken for everybody. It's not just broken for people who might have a predilection towards violence. It's broken for every single person that intersects with it. And so it's also important for us to you know, recognize that, well, yes, if you had a more robust, better funded, better coordinated mental health system, there probably would be less episodes of violence. Um, there is actually no inherent connection between mental illness and violence. People with mental illness are much more likely to be the victims of violence rather than the perpetrators. And we should fix the mental health system because it's broken, period, stop, and accept that there will be some positive consequences down the line uh, when you're talking about people who take a mental illness and turn it into a violent episode. But do you have some worry about, even in the way that you and others are, making this connection? I mean, I think it's fair to say that you've been very outspoken about gun violence in America and about the need, in your mind, for tighter gun control legislation. Many people who oppose tighter gun control regulations say that the entire problem of mass shootings in America has to do with our mental health system, essentially punting on the idea that guns play any role whatsoever. I guess I'm just wondering if you could talk about that intersection in your mind, because I know it's a it's a tricky political thing. So those of us that have lived through the experience of Newtown, who have lived with that horrific tragedy every day since, know that Adam Lanza's story is not one story. Uh, yes, uh, this kid walked into an elementary school with a military-style uh, assault weapon uh, armed with 30-round magazines, but he also was failed over and over again by a uncoordinated mental health system that just didn't have an answer for him or his mother. He also had exposure to a violent culture that taught him that there was a way to resolve his issues through violence. Um, so there's no one easy answer to how you cut down on these episodes of mass violence. But clearly, there can't be anything but benefit if you're giving more resources to parents who are trying to figure out a path forward for a son or daughter with a serious mental illness. But, you know, for the folks that say, as you referenced, that the whole problem is our mental health system, that's absolutely ludicrous. And and, and, and why do I say that? Because um, we have a gun violence rate in this country that is 20 times that of the average of other industrialized nations. And yet we don't have any greater level of mental illness in this country. We are not spending any less money on a per capita basis on behavioral health. What distinguishes this country from those that have much less levels of mass violence is not mental illness. It's this country's celebratory culture of guns. It's this country's unwillingness to keep weapons out of the hands of criminals or keep dangerous assault-style weapons out of the hands of non-military, non-law enforcement. That's actually what separates us. So, yes, you should admit that Adam Lanza's story is in part a broken mental health system. But that's not what separates us from the rest of the countries when we try to evaluate why we have much more gun violence. 
taken apart from some of these questions of violence, your Mental Health Reform Act looks to do a couple things, including something that you've already touched on, but I think bears a little bit more fleshing out. We've spoken about this on the program recently, as a matter of fact, the huge benefits toward integrating physical and mental health. This is something that seems so obvious, but just doesn't happen at so many physicians' offices. There's supposed to be mental health parity in America, Chris Murphy. So how do we get a little closer toward doctors on the front line actually looking at mental and physical health being one and the same? We have this bizarre healthcare system, right, where, you know, we live in our whole body and yet uh, our head is treated in one part of the healthcare system. Our teeth are treated in another part of the healthcare system. And then the rest of the body uh, at hospitals and their affiliated uh, arms and, and agencies. Um, we've got to bring all of that care together. And there are two things that stand in the way of that. One is the very fact that just physically mental health today is separated from physical health. And one of the things that our bill does is make a simple change to the way that Medicare and Medicaid reimburse physicians. Um, right now, you cannot get a reimbursement if you are a, um, a medical doctor on the same day that somebody else in your practice who is a uh, behavioral health clinician uh, sees the same patient. You've literally got to say to somebody, yeah, I have a social worker right down the hall from me, but you have to go home and come back tomorrow to see that social worker. Um, and the point is to try to stop this self-referral that sometimes may go on, but it really means that people don't end up getting the mental health care that they need. So we uh, allow for same-day reimbursement for physical health and for mental health. And then we come after insurance companies with a, uh, a, a new uh, section of the nation's mental health parity law that would say to insurance companies, it's not enough just to say that you cover mental health the same that you cover physical health. You also can't put these bureaucratic uh, and red tape barriers in front of families who are trying to access their mental health benefit, that if you require a prior authorization for every single visit to a psychiatrist, then that's not actually actual equal access to how you give people coverage for heart disease, for instance, where you don't require a prior authorization. So uh, we try to uh, have more enforcement of the existing law against insurance companies so that they're really covering mental illness in the same way that they're covering physical illness. And another big piece of this that I want to talk about, too, is the research piece. There are so many problems right now with getting grants for basic research. Uh, we just talked about this in our program not too terribly long ago, that even a lot of corporations are shedding their ability to do R&D because money is tight. So what provisions would you put into uh, this legislation that would ensure that more money was going to the type of research that actually helps get us better information about mental health? So for a long time, we weren't doing a lot of really interesting, meaningful research on mental health. Uh, most of the research we were doing was into drug discoveries for, you know, insidious diseases like uh, cancer or AIDS, HIV. Um, but we've realized that research for the treatment of mental illness is just as important. You know, right now, if you are depressed uh, or you're suffering from bipolar and you walk into a clinician's office, you know, effectively what they do is just try one antidepressant. Then if that doesn't work, try another. If that doesn't work, try another. Um, it's really just a process of trial and error, in part because we don't have really good data to be able to make a more pinpoint diagnosis 
um, and prescribe a more pinpoint treatment. Uh, so this bill sets up a, a, a brand new research center that would be dedicated in the federal government just to doing research on behavioral health and on interventions to see which ones work, which ones work for which kinds of people. And it's another effort at trying to achieve parity between the way that we deal with physical illness that gets a lot of research money at the NIH and mental health, which really doesn't get much research dollars at all. We would create this new institute to guarantee that we're putting some substantial amount of money into treatment so that mental health treatment isn't the kind of trial and error um, that often postpones an effective treatment for months, if not years, for a lot of patients. We're talking with Senator Chris Murphy, and he joins us today from Washington, D.C. We've been talking about uh, legislation he's been working on around mental health reform. I, I want to turn to something I actually saw you tweeting about. You're very active on Twitter, as we've talked about in the past. And I was a little surprised uh, that you uh, dropped uh, the name of this really important piece from The Intercept about the scope of U.S. targeted killings via drones. It's kind of a, a big, important read about drone strikes conducted by the U.S. government. As someone who sits on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, obviously you know an awful lot more about what the United States does in targeted killings than the rest of Americans. What stuck out to you about this reporting on U.S. drone strikes? Well, I, you know, you were surprised, but I think my staff was surprised as well when I sent out those <laughs> tweets. Uh, I do a lot of my, my own, not not all of my own tweets, uh, but I certainly um, uh, can, can often take interest in subjects that I haven't talked to my staff about. And this was one of them. Um, uh, so I can only talk to you about what I've read and you've read, not necessarily everything that I know, but what has been reported um, in this cache of documents that was uh, leaked regarding American drone uh, activities is um, a stunning number at the foundation, which is that in 90% of the cases where a drone strike occurred, the wrong person was targeted. Now, th that is the report that's uh, out there today, and a lot of people are going to be shocked by that number. Uh, the report also goes into this kind of competition that exists between the Department of Defense and the CIA uh, over who kills who and when, uh, which uh, often uh, leads to the job being done fast rather than the job being done right. Uh, now, it's kind of in the third rail of American politics because no politician wants to be against uh, these targeted killings of really, really bad guys out there. And I actually support the concept of drone activities because it is a way to make sure that evildoers, people that are plotting against the United States, are eliminated without having to march um, armies uh, into places like Afghanistan or Syria. Um, but we have to step back and realize that every time you kill somebody that's the unintended target, um, it becomes recruitment fodder. It becomes recruiting material for the very people that we're trying to eliminate. And so these numbers are numbers that the Congress should be talking about. One of the simple things that I've suggested that we do is take these drone programs and consolidate them, take them out of the CIA, which really shouldn't be in the business of running these big paramilitary operations, and put them all in the DOD. That would simplify oversight and eliminate some of this competition, which may lead to the job being done in the wrong way. This is a really controversial topic, and there are very few of my colleagues who want to take it on. But ultimately, I think America has got to get in the business of actually um, practicing what it preaches. Um, and when we have all of these... Um, targeted secret killings happening that are ending up killing the wrong people, it does damage to our credibility around the world in a way that we should talk about. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this is, obviously, I'm not putting this on your doorstep. You're not the one in the CIA pulling the trigger on these things, but you read these numbers about the number 
of people who are innocent people who are killed in these drone strikes. And I've had plenty of conversations, as I'm sure you have, with military personnel, with foreign policy experts, with other um, legislators, other congresspeople and senators who've talked about this. And invariably, we end up talking about the same things like, well, this could be a recruitment tool. It's very hard to win hearts and minds when you're uh, killing people with drones. It, uh, you know, it weakens our credibility. But I think just at a, at a core, Chris Murphy, you know, we're killing the wrong people. And I, as much as we put on one American life or one life of someone who is held hostage as an ally, I guess I just, it sort of chills you to the core to think of the number of people who shouldn't have died at the hands of U.S. drones who have, just on a just on a human level, don't you think? I completely agree with you. I mean, this report talks about just one program alone in northeast Afghanistan. And during one year, we targeted 200 people, and 165 of them were the wrong people. Those were 165 <sighs> innocent uh, Afghanis. Um, maybe some of them were, you know, a son or a daughter or a, a wife of one of these people who were plotting against the United States, but they didn't deserve to die. And so there is a human cost here. And, and the problem is, is that you probably think I know more than I actually do. Uh, the fact is I'm not a member of the Intelligence Committee. Now, I get classified briefings as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, but I'm certainly not read in to the details of these programs. Um, I learned a lot from reading these papers that I could have never learned as a member of the United States Senate and why I'm arguing for the CIA to basically get out of the business of drone killings is because there's only about uh, three or four dozen members of the House and the Senate who know anything about those programs by law. It's kept a secret from us as well. And that is part of what dampens the outrage. Um, and again, I'm someone who is willing to support drone activities because I do think it's a way to protect the United States without getting the U.S. military involved in quagmires. But uh, these rates, right? They, they they should trouble you from a national security standpoint, but from a human standpoint, they should trouble you as well. And I think just from an American citizen standpoint, too, this isn't the, the first generation, certainly, of Americans who've wondered what the CIA is up to. But between uh, decades of the CIA uh, carrying out its own operations and certainly uh, decades of the NSA doing things that we didn't know about until we later find out. I wonder, Chris Murphy, if you're hopeful that at some point during the time that you are a senator and you're you and I are about the same age, um, that we'd actually have um, an accountability for the CIA and the NSA to the American people in the way that you and other elected officials are actually accountable. I can't express a lot of confidence about that, John, to be honest, in part because the the method of the enemy is becoming more diffuse and more secretive. And so that pressures American responses to uh, mirror that, uh, that, that, that secretness. Uh, and so this is going to be a challenge moving forward. Um, you know, it used to be that you could have all the accountability you wanted in the world because it was one army marching against another army. Uh, and we could all see that battle. It played out in real time and there was a peace treaty signed and the parties to that conflict went back to their corners in their countries. That's not how it works any longer. The people that are trying to kill Americans are doing so in tiny cabals and cells, uh, which means that we, you know, ultimately are going to have to come after them in ways that aren't as transparent as methods of warfare in the past. Um, and so I think this is this is difficult. Um, I think this is a place where we cross the line, where the scope of this program became too big uh, to be purely classified. Um, but I, I will admit that it's going to be a challenge, given the nature of the enemy that we're fighting, uh, to make sure that the battle and the warfare that we're engaged in is done in a way that everybody can look at. That's, that, that, that's something that I'll be uh, 
that I'll be fighting against uh, to have this uh, operate these operations done in too covert a ma- manner, but one that I'm accepting uh, I'll probably be on the losing end of more often than not. We're talking with U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, and this is where we live. An issue that you've been very involved in, probably more so than just about anybody in the U.S. Senate, is what's been happening in and around Russia over the last few years. Certainly, it's conflict with Ukraine. Now, Russia is launching attacks in Syria uh, against opponents of President Bashar al-Assad. Some of those strikes are against targets like ISIS that we and our allies, uh, the United States, might be willing to accept. Others are not. Um, What do you make right now of Vladimir Putin and Russia's involvement in this chaotic state of Syria? Well, I'm worried uh, because the manner and method in which uh, Putin is conducting this new offensive in Syria is um, dangerously reckless. Uh, you know, he does not have the precision capabilities that the United States does. And so when he launched this battery of missiles out of the Caspian Sea, v- very few of them were hitting their targets. In fact, uh, public reporting will tell you that many of them landed in Iran. Um, similarly, his Air Force just doesn't have the reconnaissance capabilities that the United States does. And so uh, they are sometimes bombing the people they intend. Often they are not. And the first thing that we have to be very clear is that if there ever is a moment in which uh, a Russian warplane gets tangled up with a U.S. warplane, we're going to defend ourselves. There's going to be a consequence for uh, the haphazardness of his intervention in Syria. At the same time, though, I will tell you, John, as you know, I have been a critic from the beginning of what I have seen as the administration's um, uh, willingness to get involved in this civil war inside Syria. I think our focus should be uh, on uh, providing humanitarian relief to the people of Syria who are fleeing or trying to protect themselves from this violence. But Russia has had strategic equities in Syria long before the United States got involved. It shouldn't be surprising to us at some level that Russia is coming to the aid of Assad as he is being weakened, nor was it surprising to us when the Iranians came to the aid of Assad with major Hezbollah forces. It's just a caution, as far as I'm concerned, uh, that the United States ultimately uh, should protect our interests, which means going after ISIS and providing humanitarian relief for the people of Syria, not getting ourselves more deeply involved in a civil war that I ultimately don't think we have the same kind of interest that others in the region do. So to that humanitarian piece of it that that you're talking about, what do you think the United States should be doing perhaps that it is not? Obviously, we're seeing thousands and thousands of people uh, cross into places like Greece, a country which had its whole series of its own problems before this migrant crisis. So there are our allies and our friends in the European Union and what we can do to assist them. Then there's the potential for the U.S. taking on Syrian refugees here. What are the things you think we need to be doing from a humanitarian standpoint right now, Chris Murphy? So I spent the last couple of weeks organizing about two dozen of my colleagues around a request to appropriate emergency money to the humanitarian relief program in and around Syria. Um, and I argued that you actually didn't have to spend any new money to do that, that you could take the money that we have used for this disastrous training program for Syrian rebels that we found out trained only about five rebels at the cost of $500 million. And you could take that money and use it uh, for humanitarian relief in the region. And and I think that comes basically in two forms. One is food aid. Um, Very little attention given to the fact that the World Food Program has run out of money. 
to supply nutritional benefits to Syrian refugees that are living outside of the camps, just in the uh, sort of communities and neighborhoods of places like Lebanon and Jordan. If those people don't get fed through the World Food Program, somebody's going to feed them, and they will accept an offer from Al Nusra Front or ISIS uh, or really bad guys with antithetical interests to the United States if we don't feed them. So more money for the World Food Program. And then second, I, I make the argument that the United States really can't you know, continue to call ourselves a beacon for the free and the brave if we've only taken 2,000 refugees from Syria when Germany is taking 800,000. We don't need to take 800,000, but we should be taking at least in the neighborhood of 50,000. Vet them, make sure that every single one of them poses no threat to the United States, but we need some more resources for that as well. And if we do those two things, I think we can credibly say that we are stepping up to the plate, answering both our moral obligation and our national security obligation to try to be part of the humanitarian solution in and around Syria. Before I let you go, I have to ask you about something that is much, much closer to home. Amongst all the various things that you're watching in the world, you've been very concerned about how long it takes people in Connecticut to, you know, get places. And so you've been asking people uh, about transportation in the region in, in a program that you're calling Fed Up. I'm wondering if you can talk about what you're what you're hearing from people in and around Connecticut and what you're telling people about our transportation system that seems to have a whole lot of problems right now. I've been beating my head up against a wall here in Washington trying to get my colleagues to understand how bad transportation is in Connecticut and how it's holding back our economy. And, you know, listen, I, I wish I was making more progress, but a lot of these sort of Tea Party Republicans in the House and the Senate want to basically get the federal government out of funding transportation. And so the win often is just keeping the amount of money we have. So I've just been thinking of new ways that I can communicate to my colleagues how bad things are in Connecticut. And I came up with this fed up campaign. I decided to put up a website site on my uh, web page on my website to ask people to give us their very personal stories about what traffic means to them. The response has been overwhelming. The number of people who've written in to say, here's how many sports games I miss every year of my kids because of traffic. Uh, here's the amount of money I lose because I can't stay late at work because there's only one train that gets me back to Waterbury at the end of the day. I'm uh, actually about to send all of these stories to the Secretary of Transportation uh, so that he'll take a look at them. I'm going to send them to my colleagues. I'm going to go down to the floor and read some of them. But I hope people will go onto the website and give me their stories. I'm just trying to come up with new ways to communicate to people why we need more resources for the roads and the rails in Connecticut. I think I'll win this argument eventually. Uh, I'm still pretty new to this place, but the Fed Up campaign um, is something that uh, I dreamed up, and, and hopefully it'll have an impact. Chris Murphy is a U.S. Senator from Connecticut. He joined us today from the Senate Office Building in Washington, D.C., Senator Murphy, always good to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining us on Where We Live. Thanks, John. When we come back from our break, we'll check in with the other senator in Connecticut, Richard Blumenthal. He's backing efforts to help bring Puerto Rico back from the brink of financial ruin. We'll hear his plan, and you can join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we're going to take a look at the history of sanctuary cities and find out why they're still so controversial. We'll also look at what some local officials are doing to try to get more Syrian refugees into the U.S. Hope you can join us. 
Connecticut is home to a large Puerto Rican community, but this population's home country is in the midst of a financial crisis. Over the next five years, officials project a $28 billion budget shortfall for the island. The Obama administration wants Congress to act and help the Commonwealth and allow municipalities to declare bankruptcy. One supporter of this move is Connecticut's U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. He joined us earlier in the week. Senator Blumenthal, welcome to where we live. Wonderful to be with you, John. Thanks so much for having me. There's a few things I want to talk to you about, but I want to start with something that I know that you've been passionate about and we've talked about on our program before, uh, plans from the United States government to help the government of Puerto Rico. The Puerto Rican economy has been close to collapse for some time, and uh, there's a lot of questions about what the United States can do to help the island actually pull out of this problem. You've been working on some proposals with the Obama administration. Where are we right now, and, and what do you think that the U.S. Congress and the government can do to help Puerto Rico and its uh, failing economy? First and foremost, what the Congress can do is pass the measure that I have offered with a number of my colleagues, including Senator Schumer, uh, co-sponsors Bill Nelson of Florida, Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, Harry Reid of Nevada, my colleague Chris Murphy of Connecticut, really all across the country, to enable Puerto Rico to do what any state in the union can do, which is to authorize its municipalities and public utilities to reorganize their debts under the supervision of a bankruptcy court. Now, I know that sounds kind of abstract and obtuse, but it is a key step toward avoiding the catastrophe and humanitarian crisis that will result if these Puerto Rican municipalities and public utilities are unable to pay their debts. They owe billions of dollars, and they need to be able to orderly and uh, organizationally pay them over a period of time. So that's step number one. Enable Puerto Rico to be included in Chapter 9 of the Bankruptcy Code. And there are other steps that can and should be taken, some of them authorized by the administration, the uh, president or his Various cabinet secretaries yesterday spoke about, for example, extending the earned income tax credit to citizens of Puerto Rico, who, by the way, are American citizens, but they cannot avail themselves of the earned income tax credit like any other American living elsewhere in the United States, and other kinds of measures that are necessary to restore fiscal order. That's the goal, restore fiscal order, which is not only in the interest of Puerto Rico, but also Connecticut and our whole country. Aren't any measures like this, though, as obviously well-meaning and important as they are, really a stopgap to a more holistic solving of the Puerto Rico problem? I mean, the, the island has voted several times about whether or not it should be an independent nation or whether or not it should be a 51st United States. It, it has not only these rules restrictions, but countless others that keep it from really performing like a normal global economy having to do with trade and other things. I guess I'm wondering, Senator Blumenthal, if there's a next step in the Puerto Rican uh, issue with so many people fleeing the island and coming to the United States that maybe you know takes a bigger step, that maybe says we need to consider revising our relationship with Puerto Rico in a much more substantive way. The decision about whether 
Puerto Rico remains a commonwealth or becomes a state of the United States, whatever its status, this immediate step is necessary to avoid a humanitarian and financial catastrophe. Puerto Rico needs the authority that any municipalities and public utilities elsewhere in the United States have, which are to resolve and work out their debts in an orderly way. And you're absolutely right. There is not only a next step, but a series of steps that must aim at restoring Puerto Rico's economy. Uh, people there have a very, very high unemployment rate. A measure and series of measures are necessary to help restore the economic vitality of the country. Tourism has become one of its major sources of economic progress, but it is imperiled by the financial catastrophe looming. And so manufacturing, agriculture, all have to be encouraged and supported. In the, in the long term, it may matter less what the status of the country is, whether it's a commonwealth or a state of the United States, as whether there's investment, whether there is treatment of Puerto Ricans in the same way as citizens, other citizens of the United States, in terms of Medicaid, earned income tax credit, uh, other steps that are necessary to revive the economy. We're talking with U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, who joins us by phone today. Uh, Moving on to something that you're working on very closely and something we've talked about in the past in the program is third-party retail uh, electric suppliers have been having all sorts of problems uh, in terms of rates, uh, the way they contact customers, customers knowing exactly what they're paying for. Uh, What sort of things are you outlining to try to make it easier for people who have gotten involved with third-party electric suppliers to know better what they're paying uh, for these services and maybe try to keep the cost down a bit? Here's what I think is necessary right away, an investigation of the Federal Trade Commission into price gouging, misleading and deceptive marketing, exorbitant price increases and hikes in the rates, intentionally burdensome cancellation fees and other obstacles. This kind of series of predatory practices must be investigated by the federal government because they relate not only to Connecticut, but every state in the nation where there has been deregulation, which includes our neighboring states of Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and others. In fact, almost every state in New England, except for Vermont. So that's step number one. But second, there needs to be better protection in our state and federal laws. For example, the exorbitant termination or cancellation fee, the shift from fixed to variable rates. The legislature passed a measure this last session that is progress, but more needs to be done. So I think there are steps legislatively that can be taken at both the federal and state level to offer better protection. And longer term, stronger oversight over these third-party retail suppliers. They now constitute a third of the market. In other words, about a third or more of Connecticut's residential customers buy their electric power through these third-party retail 
suppliers. And in fact, their prices, their rates, are higher for about four out of five of those customers, sometimes double the standard offer rate. There are clearly abuses, and Connecticut consumers deserve to have a light shown on these practices through this investigation. So they are not put in peril when they turn on their lights and use electric power. I I have to ask you this, sir, and it's sort of it's going to sound like the question that I asked you about Puerto Rico. But um, similarly, uh, we do need to solve some problems uh, in the Puerto Rican economy now. But maybe the long term solution is figuring out how the island is going to govern itself. In in this particular case, it seems like all of these problems have stemmed from our decision to deregulate uh, the uh, the electric industry, and it's led to people actually paying higher rates if they go to competing uh, companies. Do you think it's maybe just time to scrap this notion that the deregulated electric market is going to save anybody money and regulate things more tightly beyond just what you're talking about here? Remember that uh, a lot of states decided to deregulate, and so this issue is one that's going to affect the whole country, and that's why this investigation that I've asked to be done by the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, is so very important. We need facts before we make decisions. As Ronald Reagan said, facts are stubborn things. And part of the problem here is that maybe Connecticut and other states embarked on deregulation to the extent we did without all of the facts and without seeing where those facts were going to take our state and nation. So facts first, please. Number two, what I've just advised is interim measures to afford greater protection even while we remain deregulated. For example, cancellation fees. Why should consumers pay exorbitant cancellation fees if they decide they want to go back to buying directly from Eversource or UI? Why should their rates be shifted to variable when they are led to believe they are fixed? Why should there be deceptive and misleading marketing or harassing phone calls or other kinds of abusive practices? They are not necessities under deregulation. In fact, they ought to be avoided under any system. So there are consumer protection measures that can and should be taken. I am going to be working with our Office of Consumer Counsel. Uh, Ellen Katz is doing a great job in that position. When I was Attorney General of the State of Connecticut, I worked closely with the Connecticut Consumer Council, and I hope to continue to do so as well as with the FTC. There are steps that we must take to protect consumers. Did you expect that this is what would happen to electric rates in the electric market when you were uh, Attorney General at the time when when Connecticut decided to deregulate uh, its electric markets? As you recall, I was a pretty strong advocate for protecting consumers. And I had no expectation that the rates would rise as they have now in Connecticut to double and sometimes triple what the standard offer is through these third-party providers. That's why protection is necessary, and I am an advocate of it. Even though I'm no longer in the law enforcement business, I certainly have an opportunity, and I will use it to protect consumers. I am astonished, quite frankly. I'm shocked and appalled that rates have risen in this way so that 
they are double or triple the standard offer when the sales are through these third-party electric suppliers and consumers deserve more protection. One last thing for you, sir. We read in the Hartford Current that you've been talking with Metro North about rail safety once again in the wake of a derailment of a CSX oil tanker in West Virginia. I know that there are potentially some parallels to other crashes that have happened on the tracks here. What have you found out from Metro North about about safety in the last couple days? I'm going to drill down on what Metro North has told me, which is that things are progressing well and we should be assured that they're have been constructive changes in their inspection and maintenance practices. The reason I contacted Metro-North in the wake of this report on the CSX disaster in West Virginia is that the finding about that derailment was that its cause was inadequate inspection and maintenance, exactly the same cause as happened in Bridgeport when the Metro-North train couple of years, several years ago, went off its tracks and collided with another oncoming train. So improper and inadequate inspection of tracks, the failure to find, for example, in Bridgeport, the crack connection between those tracks, which then led to a derailment. I want to know more about what Metro-North is doing, a general bland assurance that progress is being made, in my view, is insufficient for the riders and customers of Metro Court. U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, thanks as always for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Our program is produced by Tucker Ives with Lydia Brown, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Nalea. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tularski. You can continue this conversation on our website. Go to wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.